You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. This week we are once again immersed in the world of theatre, but with two productions that are almost polar opposites of each other. After one, you're likely to be humming a tune all the way home, whilst after the other you will have peered profoundly into the unsettling and bewildering intersection of love and medical ethics. But the two things that both plays have in common is that they both have their origins in a true story and both stories are linked to the city of Baltimore. Later in the show I'll be talking to director Rachel Bauer along with dramaturg Kaylin Jones and actor Jack Fulkerson about their production of Boy which opens tonight at Talking Horse Theatre. But first we are going to fly back in time to the early 1960s to talk hairdos and hair don'ts with director Enola White and actors Liz Marlowe and John Cradier who are opening the musical comedy Hairspray at Columbia Entertainment Company next week. Hello and welcome Enola, Liz and John. Hello, thank you. (laughs) I'm guessing it's pretty rare for a production to start life as a movie, then become a Broadway musical and then get remade into a second movie based on the musical. And I watched both movies this week and I'm struggling to decide which one I like best. Does anybody have a preference? Ooh, for me, I would prefer the 2007 movie musical simply because Zac Efron. (laughs) Absolutely, Zach. Always Zach Efron. (laughs) There's something a little more campy and chaotic about the 1988 Mm -hmm. movie. Certainly the acting is a lot better in the 2007 version. (laughs) (laughs) But this must be a hugely fun show to work on. Big skirts, big hair, big personalities, plus a big message all set to early 1960s music. And although I am not a musical theatre actor by a long chalk, I am having massive musical theatre envy this week with so many friends, either in Mamma Mia at Capital City Productions Mm -hmm. or in Hairspray at Columbia Entertainment Company. Are these dream roles to be in listen John oh absolutely I think Hairspray is such a special show and Tracy is such an incredible character and it feels really incredible to be able to embody that and especially with a cast that's this talented and incredible and John have you always wanted to uh, dress in drag well I wouldn't say always but you know (laughs) (laughs) Hairspray actually was the show that got me into musical theater I I saw the um, the 2007 movie um, and it really kind of broke the boundary of, oh, wow, this is really cool. And I thought it was funny at first that, you know, the mom is played by a man, and then you see that the tradition of the show is that it's always done that way, and I think it's really it's really interesting to become a part of it. Right, and so you're following the footsteps of Divine in 1988 and John Travolta in 2007. Both big shoes to fill, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> He's doing fantastic. <laughs> so we're in Baltimore, it's June 1962, and teenage girls and some boys are preoccupied with having a high hairdo and getting on the local Corny Collins teenage dance show. Enola, set the rest of the scene for us. Who do we meet and what journey are we going to take with them? Um, So the very first person that you see on the stage, of course, is Tracy. And this is 
partially her story, but it is very much a story of acceptance and also acceptance of others, acceptance of your own body, uh, personal image, responsibility, all kinds of themes come into play. Um, But we start with Tracy and we kind of go into her head for a little bit through to I I Can Hear the Bells and we take a kind of sidestep and we talk to Velma for a little bit and we understand why Velma is the way she is. And who is Velma? Velma is Velma Von Tussel, played by Amanda Atkins, who is doing fantastic as well. Um, And Velma is the radio studio TV producer. Um, So she is the character, really the villain of the show. And she's the person that Tracy has the most contentious relationship with on the show or in in the production. So Velma, we go into Velma's mind in Baltimore Crabs to understand her character and why she is the way she is. And then we go a little bit into Edna's, Edna's mind and we, we find out Edna used to be this fantastic dress designer and she had all of this self-confidence, but somehow along the way that kind of got lost. And her daughter Tracy really helps her kind of un- uncover that and rediscover that element in, in her. And her husband Wilbur is there by her side, played by David McSpaden, who's absolutely phenomenal in this role. He's hilarious. And Wilbur's there championing her the entire way. We have Tracy's best friend Penny and then Penny's uh, kind of new boo, uh, Seaweed. And they are also going on they're taking the kind of what is the visual story of hairspray which is the racial relations um taking that story and bringing that to light of you can like somebody that's different than you that looks different than you and that's okay as long as you like them everybody else should be fine with it right so we we really go on that journey with each one of those characters and they each have their little moment to bring their own bit of the story to light now, Liz, you're playing Tracy Turnblad, an yeah. adorable, adorable high school student who is pleasantly plump and who not only loves to dance, but is awesome at it. Tell us about Tracy's world. Oh, wow. Well, Tracy is a teenage girl who's just completely in the midst of being obsessed with Link Larkin, and she wants to dance on this TV show. And I think initially her journey starts out really being focused on being absolutely obsessed with Link and wanting to do nothing but dance. And she's really confronted with the idea that there are people in the world who don't want white and black people to dance together. They don't want to be seen together. And to her, that's mind boggling. And she gets to go on a journey, not only where she falls uh, head over heels for the boy that she's been obsessing with through a TV screen, but where she actually gets to see racism firsthand and where she has to make a decision about if she's going to be a bystander or she's going to be an ally. And um, that's probably my favorite part of this journey. Not only she goes into it accepting herself and she's taking people by the hand to lead them um, to accept themselves, but I think my favorite part is her having to confront the fact that she has a part to play in this story of healing between um, these two groups of people and I love being able to figure out that part of it with her. She uh, is so sweet and sassy and is so self-confident, and I love that about Tracy. So as you've been learning her role, what kind of mental adventures do you take? Like, do you go to the supermarket with her in your head and see what she's saying? <laughs> um, I go to the supermarket with the soundtrack in my head for sure, a lot. I hope you know that, Enola. Um, it's good, it's catchy. But yeah, I mean, I definitely, I think... I think it's really rare to get to be in a story of a plus-size woman who's already at the moment where she's accepting herself. She doesn't have a whole lot of examples of that. And I didn't grow up with a ton of examples of plus-size women who loved themselves. So I think just my mental journey with this is lots of positive self-talk surrounding myself with women who love themselves. The show is full of women who are so supportive and men who are incredibly supportive. And so it's a lot of just 
telling myself that it's okay to be exactly who I am in that moment. And that's Tracy's story too. Are you following in the footsteps of actors like Ricky Lake, who was in the 1988 movie, Nikki Blonsky in the 2007 movie, Marissa Winokur, who was in the stage production? Who's your main muse? Oh, that's so hard to say. I don't know. I have a. I used to watch the Ricky Lake show when I was growing up, um, which is controversial because I was so little. So I love seeing Ricky Lake in the original <laughs> one. But I recently really enjoyed Maddie Balio and the live version, um, which was just put on ABC. But yeah, there's some really special early moments with Ricky Lake for me in the original one. Yeah, I, I'm really struggling to work out which, you know, which uh, Tracy <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I yeah. like the best. Let's listen to a little clip from the original Broadway recording. No! Mother! Stop! Stop telling me what to do! Don't! Don't treat me like a child of two! No! I know that you want what's best! Please! But mother, please! original Broadway recording of Mama, I'm a Big Girl Now from Hairspray, sung by Marissa Janet Winokur on the Ensemble. What I love about having musical theatre people in the studio when we play a song is that everybody just starts playing their roles. <laughs> we can't help it. We can't help it. Yes. <laughs> I need to have a Facebook Live at some yeah. point. That was... That was just so adorable because we have that song sung by Tracy to her mother, mm-hmm. Edna, both of whom are here. So there was just a little lovely little scene going on. So <laughs> I wish I could share them on radio. But anyway, it was adorable. So, John, Edna is the sweetest size 60 agoraphobic introvert in the history of musical theatre. That's true. Tell <laughs> us about yourself, Edna, and why you haven't left the house since 1951. Well, I think Enola touched on it a little bit. Um, Edna had her own dreams and her own passions. She wanted to be a designer, and she I think she had a similar dream to Tracy, where she saw herself as very... Well, she saw the beauty in her that Wilbur sees in her every day, and she wanted to make a way for everybody else that looked like her to be as beautiful as she thinks she is. But then somewhere along the way, someone... And I, I think we talked about this towards the beginning of our production. I think it was either the media or because that's constant pressure on women to conform to a certain size and, sh- and shape. Someone taught her to be to be ashamed, to hide herself away. And so she's kind of built herself this little nest and she doesn't want to leave because she knows that everybody outside will hurt her. 
I have a soft spot for men who are superlatively uxorious, which is one of my favourite words oh, good word. like in the that. English language. Like and it, it means a man who has excessive fondness for his wife. And really, Wilbur, Wilbur is the embodiment mm -hmm. of that. He, really he loves Edna so much. Tell us about your husband, Edna. Uh, David McSpadden, who is playing Wilbur, is, uh, I know I said it, he is the perfect person to do it, and he really he embodies this person, this very goofy, but very just earnest and sweet man. He just, he sees life as very, um, he sees it for what it is, it's very serious, but also he knows that life can be very sweet and it can be funny and we can make the best of it. And he sees this, this beauty, this immense beauty in Edna, and he wonders, I think, like we all do, where to go. And he just, he's constantly trying every day to just make her remember that, you know what, I think you're beautiful, and you think you're beautiful, and that's all that matters. And he runs a joke shop. He does. So he has a lovely sense of humor, too. <laughs> he does. <laughs> so Tracy is the best parts of Wilbur and Edna combined. She's got this wonderful sense of humor and this wonderful sense of confidence. They are the best parents. <laughs> they are. And now famously, the remake included John Travolta in a fat suit made of layered pads and silicon. And it took him four hours to get into makeup and costume. How many hours does it take you <laughs> to get all that hair? You know, it does not take me four hours. I don't know if I'd be able to sit still that long. <laughs> It, it did take a while, especially to get everything together. Our wonderful customer, Justina Simonson, has put a lot of work into perfecting or, or just trying to, to make Edna look as, as beautiful as we all think she is. Um, and she's um, still working on all the hair to make it just as big as it possibly can be. The makeup is still, for me at least, in progress because I've experimented a bit with drag and makeup before, but we're trying to make her look authentic and not like, not like a cartoon so <laughs> it does take a while but not four hours that's for sure <laughs> i don't think anybody has four hours in community no. theater uh, you know no. <laughs> now, there are some pretty fundamental differences between the original 1988 movie and the 2007 remake slash musical play mm. which is what it's based on not only in the story but also in the tone enola do you think something is lost or gained in the remake well, it kind of depends on how you look at it, because the 1988 version is a very much John Walters, mm -hmm. uh, John Walters production, and it is very much a product of its time. It is very campy in the 80s, and it's very, like I said, very much a product of its time. And I think that the 2007, and not necessarily 2007 production, but the musical version of the show, there are a couple elements that are lost in there, um, specifically kind of more of the, the dark reality um, that a lot of the characters were facing. That kind of is lost, and it's a little bit more brightened and packaged in a nice little easy-to-digest bubble for, for the musical theater audiences to consume. So yeah, I do think that there's a little bit that's lost there, but I think that there they're distinctly different, even though they're dealing with the same content uh, matter. They're completely different productions. And we have a, what is a movie, a kind of a darker, gritty movie in the 80s genre in that feel. And then we have a light, more campy kind of musical theater production. But they both do a good job of communicating the overall story, which is a story of race relations, a story of um, self-acceptance, a story of recognizing the potential in others and helping them uh, achieve greatness. And there is a lot more solemnity, I think, in the mm -hmm. 2007 on the play about the question of segregation yeah. and racism. It's dealt with, it's much more chaotic and campy, I felt, in the first one, and it feels like it's much more serious. And you have yeah. Queen Latifah in the remake, and so she's not going to join a production unless there's you know, a big mm -hmm. power number for her. And 
as the New York Times theatre critic wrote, Hairspray is as sweet as a show can be without promoting tooth decay. But behind, <laughs> <laughs> behind all that bubblegum cuteness, there is this story about racial prejudice, discrimination, segregation and inequality. And there is real history contained in this story. From 1957 to 1963, Baltimore's real-life Buddy Dean show did not allow black teens to take part, and neither did many other shows around the country. Record Hop in Charleston, Pop Shop in Memphis, Saturday Hop in Houston, amongst many were all segregated dance shows. And nationally, American Bandstand had also blocked black teens from its show. But in 1963, a group of students called the Civic Interest Group did get tickets for the Buddy Dean show, and after an unexpected interracial broadcast, the TV station, WJZ-TV, received bomb and arson threats. So rather than deal with more controversy, they instead cancelled the show. So what are your thoughts on taking such a serious and tragically still current situation and turning it into entertainment? Does it inform or oversimplify history? Is it too revisionist? So my parents are grew up very much in the civil rights era um, in the South. My mom's from um, New Orleans. My dad is from Vicksburg, Mississippi. So when you think of civil rights era, they, they lived it 100% to a T. So do I think that it's oversimplified? Yes. Do I think that it needs to be? It's not possible to explore all the facets of it because there are so many different elements um, that were going on then that the fact that we're even talking about it and we have a show that is touching on that is is incredible and in, extremely empowering. And that's one of the reasons that drew me to Hairspray is because I have family that experience this and they tell those stories all the time to me. And those kind of help inform me as a human being and how I, I grew up and how I envision and, and see the world and how I'm able to to see someone else and say, you know, I like you. I don't care that you look different than me. I don't care that you have a different opinion than me. We are we're going to be friends simply because there is something in you that I genuinely see as as something that we can we can mutually agree upon and and have a a good time together. So it's a double edged sword. There's no way it can possibly um, expand upon the full idea of what exactly happened in the civil rights era unless you were there, unless you were living it. But the fact that it is even brought to light in a show and you do have a song like I Know Where I've Been, where that song kind of embodies that drive and that fight. And Motormouth is telling you it's okay to feel down and destitute, but you've got to remember this is where you were and this is where you're, you are now and this is where you're trying to get to. And that's kind of what the point of the civil rights era was and the civil rights movement was like, this is where we were. We're here now. We have our voices and this is where we're trying to get to. We're still in the trying to get to phase. But I Know Where I've Been is, is a fantastic song that embodies that spirit of the civil rights movement. And we're going to listen to that song next, but set the scene for us, Enola, before we play the song. So... Tracy has just been, uh, we've just done the Big Doll House, and Tracy is left in solitary refinement. Um, <laughs> she doesn't know confinement. And she, it's all on the news on all three channels that Tracy has been locked up. And it was simply because they went to Mother Daughter Day to integrate the TV show. And Velma was there, and Velma has enough power to, to shut it down. Um, so at the end of one, everyone is arrested and we open act two and we're in the big dollhouse and Tracy uh, comes out of, I'm not going to tell you how she gets out, um, <laughs> but she comes out of, of jail and we've got Penny and Seaweed and Link and a, a bunch of the, the other um, cast members on stage and they're, they're feeling down. 
they don't know where to go um, because they tried it, it didn't work, and they don't know how to, to, to get back on the horse. So I know where I've been is, is very much Motormouth saying, this is where we were, this is where we are, and this is how we can get to where we want to be. There's a light in the darkness Though the night is black as my skin There's a light burning bright Showing me the way But I know where I've been there's a cry in the distance It's a voice that comes from deep within There's a cry asking why I pray the answer's up ahead Cause I know where I've been There's a road We've been traveling Lost so many On the way But the riches Will be plenty Worth the price the price we had to pay There's a dream in the future There's a struggle we have yet to win And there's pride in my heart Cause I know As I Know Where I've Been from the original Broadway cast recording sung by Mary Bond Davis and the ensemble, a song that almost didn't make it into the show according to the composer. The cast thought it was too sad and too preachy but audiences loved it and it stayed and as we were saying while the music was playing this is really the song of the show. This is the big moment in mm -hmm. the show. We are almost out of time. I will give a quick rundown. Is there anything else you want to add? I'll give people information about tickets in my little closing um, just come, please see our show. I, I can't tell you how wonderful it has been. I'm a first-time director um, to to be with this kind of a caliber of a cast and production team, and just to to see it come together um, over the last few days, really. Um, and we're still a week out from opening, and just the chills that I'm getting a week from opening, and I just can't wait to put a live audience in front of them um, so that they can everyone else can see what I've been experiencing for the last six, seven weeks. 
The Columbia Entertainment Company's production of Hairspray opens next Thursday, 13th of June. You can get tickets at cectheatre.org or by giving them a call at 573-474-3699. Tickets are $14 for adults and 12 for seniors and children under 12, unless you go on a Thursday, in which case you get a $10 ticket. The show runs for three weekends and it concludes on the last weekend in June. Liz, John and Enola, thank you so much for coming on the show and break a leg. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts at 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia. And after a short break, we'll be back looking at the new production of the dramatic play Boy, which opens tonight at Talking Horse Theatre. Don't wander off. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. Now, if you are at all squeamish or prefer not to hear references to male reproductive organs, you might want to turn the volume down for the next two minutes. On August the 22nd, 1965, identical twin boys, Bruce and Brian, were born in Winnipeg, Canada. At the age of six months, their parents took them to see a doctor as they were concerned about how they urinated, and it was confirmed that both boys were suffering from phimosis. Doctors decided that circumcision was the cure, and in April 1967, when they were seven months old, a urologist performed the procedure on Bruce using the unusual method of electrocauterization. It went tragically wrong. Bruce's penis was so severely damaged that it could not be saved. His brother Brian was spared the surgery. Worried about how their son would fare in his adult life, the parents sought the help of a psychologist in Baltimore, Dr. John Money, who was building a reputation at that time as a pioneer in the field of gender identity, and his theory was that nurture was dominant to nature. Bruce's parents were told that his best chance for future happiness was to give the child more surgery, to remove his testes and surgically create a vagina. His parents were told that they should raise him as a girl and that they should not tell him the truth. And so Bruce became Brenda. It's only when he was 13 and told his parents he was on the verge of suicide and that he refused to see Dr. Money ever again, that they told him the truth and he reassumed his male gender. David, as he chose to be called, went public with his story to John Calapinto in 1997, who published his account in Rolling Stone magazine and then expanded the article into a New York Times bestseller called As Nature Made Him, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Girl, which was published in 2000. This, then, is the origin story and the inspiration for Anna Ziegler's moving play, Boy. And with me in the studio is director Rachel Bauer, the dramaturg Kaylin Jones, and the actor Jack Fulkerson, who plays the role of Adam. Hello, everybody. Hello. 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 This is a gut-wrenching story of love, loss, ethics, and human tragedy. It's a hard 75 minutes of intense drama. How is it to act and direct such intensity over and over again? Uh, well, I guess I can say it's hard. It, it's, it's really hard. Some of the scenes require a lot of, I'd say, maturity, especially going from Samantha playing her at age six and seven, and then going in the next scene as playing it as Adam, as like as 23, and, and all those emotions that come with being so young, and then going through all that and becoming Adam and all, all that he's been through. It's hard. It, it's, it's been a challenge, but one that's really made me aware of the situation and what everything David went through and and stuff like that, yeah, for sure. Rachel, tell us how the story of Adam, the boy at the center of the drama, how it unfolds. 
Um, so it loosely follows uh, kind of a lot, some of David's experience. We do have um, his parents as two of the characters, Dr. Wendell Barnes, who is um, modeled after Dr. Money, and um, Adam's girlfriend, Jenny. And so in a series of a very episodic nature of, of um, where we don't have a linear plot, we're told mostly in flashback, we get to understand Adam's experience being raised as a woman and uh, how then he is now in the current time of 1989 to 1990 um, as he's living as Adam and um, existing and meeting Jenny and, uh, well, meeting Jenny. (laughs) (laughs) And um, has he met her as a child as well? Um, And we're seeing his interactions with his parents and with the doctor and that progression with the doctor from having him as being someone who he admired and someone who he wanted to please to someone he then starts to rebel against. Um, so we're able to see that journey in a series of um, flashback. It's really, really interesting to see Adam's story unfold. Yeah. I'd like to say the story unfolds along two timelines. Samantha, mm-hmm. as a child, making her annual visits to see her psychologist, Dr. Barnes, and then Adam, as an adult man, negotiating love and his relationship with his parents, too. So mm-hmm. tell us how you stage that, because it's nothing... Everything is happening on one stage. There's no change of sets. All the furniture stays there pretty much. And all the people kind of stay on mm-hmm. stage the whole time. How, how do you do that? Well, it's, it's quick. And it's visible to the audience when we are moving uh, between areas on the stage. And so we have three basically designated areas that signify different parts of Adam's life. And we move between the three of those to tell the story. But for me as the director, I approached it from a pretty meta theatrical point of view. Um, our actors are present and visible the whole time, as are our props and many of our set pieces to remind us that we're kind of seeing this constructed story of Adam and that we're aware that we are moving between time and space in a way to have him tell his story the best he can in this space. Now, Jack, you are Adam, a grown man, and you are Samantha, a growing female child. Tell us about how you prepared for those two roles. uh, (laughs) Where did you draw your inspiration from? Who did you observe? How did you get into the mind of a six-year-old to 13-year-old girl? Yeah, well, I actually have a little sister. Her name's Audrey. She's 15 now, but, you know, I'd always seen her growing up and everything, and and all the mannerisms I kind of got from her and just picked up from that. And I tried to recall back to even when I was young, because, you know, even as Samantha, she's still a boy and and has all these these instinctual things she wants to do and all this kind of stuff. And so... What was hard for me was balancing that of, of learning I was a girl, but also having those instincts of, of a boy and what he wants and, and all that kind of stuff and, and like the, the clash there is between that. And for Adam, it, it was very, I found it very easy. I found him, I could relate to him very well. He's a very awkward guy and uh, just trying to make his way. And I, I'm like that, I'd say quite a bit. But the challenge was, I think, having all that in the back of my head, like all that's happened to me as Adam, like all that I've been through as Samantha and like just how I how I try and not forget about that but just try and move on and try and move on with my life especially with Ginny because I've known her for a while I guess and when I see her it's hard it's I have to keep in the back of my mind that I can't let her know who I actually am and so a lot of that was just a lot of a lot of secrets to myself that I didn't want to let out yes very very reserved and, and closed off I'd say what makes it even harder for you is that you don't really leave the stage. You have to seamlessly transition between Adam and then you're called into the next scene and you arrive 
a few steps away on the stage and you arrive as yeah. Samantha and you sit down and you know you don't have any change of clothes you don't mm. have any change of voice it's all about your facial expressions and your mannerisms mm-hmm. how you sit how you fiddle with your hands yeah. I mean that just uh, must be incredibly difficult expand a little on that process yeah as we were rehearsing, I was trying to figure out, like, play with how I could how I could show the audience that I, since that is just so open and there's no transition or even a close change or anything, um, how I could show that I've become this, this girl who's six years old, seven years old. And a lot of that was just all kind of me not caring or just kind of in my own head, because I feel like as a little kid, you... Um, you kind of have your own thoughts and you're not very good at listening or you just kind of interrupt whenever and you're just fiddling along and you know and especially with Wendell in those scenes I'm very comfortable with him at, at the early points and so I'm just very relaxed and lackadaisical and all that kind of stuff but it's very hard for some of the scenes especially coming from a scene with Adam that's very emotionally driven where I, I get in that state of emotion sadness or anger and then having to come right out of it as Samantha and, and be this, this little girl who and you see in the play actually it starts to feel those emotions. You kind of see it mirrored as Adam, he, he'll get angry, let's say. And then in the next scene, Samantha feels the same way. So some of that, some of that helped, but also very difficult to, to do that. You very kindly allowed me to come and see the dress rehearsal last night. And I mean, you did an amazing job. But Thank I mean, you. I could see how difficult it was for the, to make those transitions mm-hmm. happen. Rachel, let's talk a little bit about Jenny, Adam's love interest. Mm-hmm. She's very tolerant of what must be an incredibly bewildering situation. And I wonder what you feel her motivations are. I feel like if this was set in 2019 rather than 1989, <laughs> then she would just have ghosted Adam completely because he's just <laughs> totally weird. Yeah, yeah. Um, what are her motivations here? It's funny you say that because a couple of times in rehearsal, we were like, man, Adam's really being mean. Just Why would jerk. Jenny stay? Yeah. Um, but I think... And as she says at one point, she does feel a connection with him, and she felt a connection with him when she first met him. And she tends to be taking a chance on him as he's kind of... I think she also views him taking a chance on her, right? She does in in the play kind of say, I'm not looking for anything. She's a single mom and of a four-year-old boy named Brian. And so she kind of puts herself in that position of kind of being guarded and... Um, at first and then learns to trust him as they're trying to trust each other but it is really really interesting how we see this relationship with them unfold it's not at all it's not sunshine and roses there it is a bit tumultuous and they do have a couple of kerfuffles kerfuffles (laughs) right (laughs) throughout and then you have fabulous Nora Dietzel playing the mom and Mm -hmm. Craig Yeager playing the dad and that's you know, the role of the parents in this just breaks my heart. Mm-hmm. How much damage they've seen done to their child yeah. and how trusting they are initially to the process. Mm-hmm. Kaylin, talk a little bit about the parents and, and uh, their feelings in this. I think the parents are, in my opinion, by far some of the most interesting characters in this play and interesting people in real life. They're faced with an extremely difficult decision and a decision that's not necessarily popular, especially being in the late uh, 60s. But I think what they do is done out of love and compassion. They want their child to lead a normal life as best as they can. And so they make this decision that's terrifying um, with absolutely no idea that what's going to happen to their child with the utmost hope that they're doing what's best for Samantha. 
And this is definitely a play that needs a dramaturg. Right. There is mm-hmm. so much for audiences to try and get their heads around. The clash of science versus mm. medicine, the dilemma mm. of love and good intentions mm. being horribly misguided, the history of our understanding of gender, mm. the debate of nurture and nature. Mm-hmm. So what is your role here and, and how do you present the complexities of that? Right. So my role in just in general as a dramaturg, which is a term a lot of people don't know and I'm still grappling with myself, um, I like to think of it kind of as the go-to person. Any question, anything anyone needs, um, either I know the answer or I find out the answer and report back as soon as I can. But with a show like this, it was an interesting task. I think a show like this is kind of contradictory in a way um, because, again, it's set during a time where conformity was the way, especially the late 60s, 70s, even mm-hmm. with the sexual revolution and everything. But a majority of the people felt this is, it was a very binary society. And so for a show like this, is trying to navigate, okay, these people are making a decision to change the sex of their child, but also this is a very religious society they're doing this in. So I often wonder, and I still don't have an answer, how these people must have felt doing that. I believe in the in the real life story that the parents were of Mennonite descent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, even more difficult mm-hmm. to understand the ramifications of, of um, what was possible and um, mm-hmm. what options right. they should take. Right. And the true story of David Reimer and John Money, or John Money rather, the, uh, which is the inspiration for the play, mm-hmm. the playwright Anna Ziegler says that from the origin, because she wasn't, and to quote her, interested in writing a story about a villain and a victim, but in exploring the complicated terrain of mutual need, mm-hmm. love, and dependence between mm-hmm. doctor and patient, and the problems that arise when someone is desperate to see an experiment succeed. Mm-hmm. What kind of discussions have you had as a group around that villainy or <laughs> lack of thereof? Mm-hmm. We actually, so as a, as a group, we've shared resources, we've shared interviews with the playwright, interviews that David gave on Oprah, um, and uh, different pieces that have been written both for the public and more scholarly pieces about this case. And uh, Richard Harris, who is playing Dr. Wendell Barnes, at one point said, you know, I don't really know if I can read a lot of this about Dr. Money, because uh, he was like, I feel if I do, I will make him a villain. Um, where Anna really doesn't do that, nor does she intend anyone in this play to be the bad guy. You know, early on in the process, I actually asked everyone, who do you think is the bad guy, right? Or the bad girl, you know, bad woman. And really, there there is no one. I think um, the playwright does such a wonderful job of bringing humanity to a situation and allowing us as the audience to have our own feelings and takeaways from that. And I hope that it continues to have our audience speaking and talking Mm -hmm. and thinking about um, the topic of this play and how it really relates to a lot of what's going on in our contemporary society. Mm -hmm. But for us, it was really, you know, stepping back and saying that he's a well-intentioned doctor, Um, He doesn't do this, though we may see it now and even then as maybe not being the best thing to do for this child. He doesn't see it that way. He sees himself as being helpful. And in one of his last speeches, he said, I helped people. I helped you. The success of your case helped people. But did it help him? Right. I mean, and, and although she said she doesn't want to write about a villain, it's really hard 
particularly mm -hmm. when you've read the true story, mm -hmm. not to see Dr. Barnes as a villain in the story. Mm -hmm. I mean, the real life details of what he did are truly appalling. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And yes. and in, in Anna Ziegler's hands, he's much more of a benign presence. Yes. So Jack, when you're inhabiting Adam, how hard was it to feel love and not hate for him? I don't know. I, I, I found, I mean, it's a hard thing to, to relate to, I guess, what he's been through, but um, I don't know. I, I felt love for him. I felt very pitiful for him. Um, just he, he's trying so hard to just make this life because everything, everything that happened to him wasn't really his fault. I mean, it kind of was put upon him. But I think Adam comes from a place of love and he he knows he, he definitely knows and even in the interviews with david he knows that his his mother and father did that out of love they thought it was the best decision they could have done um and with dr wendell especially with dr barnes they definitely had a relationship a loving relationship at least in the play and it breaks his heart in one of the last scenes just um seeing them like that them two together like that but i think overall i definitely i definitely had love because i knew it came from a place of um, true genuine feeling Play reminds me, the scientific study component of the play reminds me a lot of the documentary Three Identical Strangers, which mm -hmm. was a true-false a couple of years ago, and if you've seen that, and the horrific opportunism of that scientific research, which just kind of feels that's what's happening here, that he's seeing this, here are twins, it's a perfect case study, he can you know, follow on a perfect control group, and that there's just such... Gosh, I mean, I don't want to say the word evil, but there's there's such lack of humanity mm -hmm. in in that choice. Have you had any discussions with scientists as you develop the play about the role of scientific research in medicine? No, we actually haven't. But I am a researcher, um, and you know, it's been very apparent to me as we've been talking through this play and working through this play, just the changes in standards when it comes to. Uh, especially doing human subject research and how those yeah. those standards have changed a lot since the late 60s um, and many of the checks and balances that are in place now to make sure that subjects are being treated with humanity um, and with care and caution and safety. Um, and that didn't exist. Well, it, it did to a point, but not at the same level as it does now. And, you know, things passed off as scientific study 40, 50 years ago were sometimes terrifying and how subjects were treated and um, the amount of information given to subjects and the lies that were told to subjects to have them participate in studies. We're also in this case working with babies who were not able to give consent. So David was not able to give any kind of consent being a seven month old when all of this occurred and happened to his body. His parents were able to give consent and they were only, they gave that out of, again, love, but also the information that they were given by mm -hmm. their doctor who they thought was doing the very best he could for their child. Do we know how old the parents were in real life? Because they may have been really young too. They were, I believe, if not mistaken, the father was 20 and the mother was 18. They so were, they were very They're young. just children very young. themselves, almost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ugh. 
So Boyhood is premiere in 2016, and it was funded in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, which explores the intersection of art and science. And on the whole, it received positive reviews. But one criticism that cropped up repeatedly is, and I'm going to quote the New York Times theatre critic Ben Brantley, it often feels like the work of a scrupulous school teacher eager to introduce a potentially off-putting but important topic to uninformed students without frightening them. Boy is so determined not to be sensational or bleak that it bleaches itself of troubling complexity. Now, having lived with these characters for a few weeks now, do you think that's fair? I do think that with this play, there are she does gloss over some of the more difficult parts of the uh, true story. But, you know, from a playwriting perspective, she does that, I think, to kind of streamline the story and the message she's trying to get across. So you could say that it's a bit didactic in that way. But I think one of the things that we've really worked on as a team is to bring humanity to these characters um, and to bring a humanness. I think that it was missing in, a, in, in some of the reviews that I had read um, from other productions. So, yes. I think that that's a fair analysis to a point. But I also think we have to remember the purpose of what Anna is um, trying to do with this play. And I've, I read the play and then like, I saw it last night mm-hmm. and I've you know, read some of the background on the true story. And, and I feel like I still want some resolution. Mm-hmm. That, that there were scenes that didn't quite ring true and the reality in real life of the depression that both Bruce and his brother experienced Mm -hmm. feels like it's unexplored. Adam is such a kind of passive and relatively peaceful person. You don't really see what is obviously the turmoil going on inside and so it feels particularly the ending feels a little revisionist and like you know Mm -hmm. tied up in a neat and tidy bow and and I know the true story is only an inspiration for the play Mm -hmm. it's not it's not supposed to follow the true story but does the exploration of love and ethics ring true would Adam slash Samantha of course in the end Samantha didn't like Dr. Barnes but does it ring true how she feels about and how he feels about Adam, about Dr. Barnes. When he finally meets him, again, without giving anything away in later life, you know, he's still quite calm about it. Whereas you'd think in real life, you know, he'd have his hands around his neck. Yeah. (laughs) That was, that scene in particular, um, not to say anything again, but was one of the hardest ones for me me to, to wrap my head around as Adam, how he would actually react. And I think the way I saw it, he's very... I think they, like I said, they did have that deep relationship when they were young, and it, it's just so shocking, such a shocking moment in his life that he doesn't really, he's trying so hard to hold back all this, and then, and then at one point it really just, he just breaks down, you know, he just can't handle it anymore. Um, and I agree, I think in real life, they're probably, it probably would have turned out a little different, more aggressive maybe, but I don't know, I, I think Adam has, I think especially in the play, Adam has matured over that time in his life and he he doesn't feel he does feel anger but I don't think he feels like a rage inside him that just mm-hmm. wants to lash out at, at Dr. Barnes he he just wants to show him like look who I am now like I, I, I've become so much and um, yes you helped me in a way but I was the one who chose to be myself and Samantha in the play at least does have a love for Dr. Barnes. So there is that complication, uh, uh, the complicated feelings of um, anger and love kind of happening at the same time. Yeah. And that's kind of what mm-hmm. we played with a lot in that in that scene that uh, Jack is referencing. Because 
you know, we say things in our head of, you know, the person, when we see the person who scorned us, you know, we, we have this thing rehearsed in I'm our gonna head. I'm going to do this and that. Do we ever say that mm-hmm. in real life when we see that person and those real life mm-hmm. emotions come up? And so Adam is really caught off guard. Yeah. And it's, he does have these complicated feelings. And I think if, if, if Anna does a really, if anything really, really well, I think with this play, it is really making us see the, the complicated kind of juxtaposition of, of yeah. different feelings, emotions, and topics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have been truly haunted by this play and the, and the true story all week. And I mm-hmm. know this happened in the 1960s, but David and his brother were born 32 days before I was born which makes them just, this is my lifetime. This is not some long distant past. Well, it might be to you, Jack, but it isn't, it isn't to me. <laughs> well. <laughs> and because of that pioneering work done by Dr. Money, thousands upon thousands of gender reassignment surgeries were done for decades mm-hmm. before nurture trumps nature doctrines were disputed. And that is really overwhelming that this is my lifetime. Mm-hmm. So I'm really glad to know that you've scheduled two talkback sessions to discuss the issues raised. Rachel, tell us a little bit about those. Well, I'm actually going to pass it on to our dramaturg. Um, Our dramaturg (laughs) is the one who arranged this for our public. Yes, so with the talkback with the show, what we're hoping to do, well, first of all, it's going to be myself, the dramaturg, Rachel, the director, um, the cast, and we invited a special guest kind of expert to navigate this kind of difficult topic um, because it is a it is a difficult play to watch and even though it kind of in a way has a happy ending it's still a lot to process and so what we're hoping to do with a talk back on both Saturday shows is open it up for di- uh, dialogue I'm gonna have Melina the expert ask whatever questions they have to the actors into us about the process and kind of generate thought and then have them open it up to the audience to ask us whatever questions they want to ask us. And that's Melina Constantine Maceo, yes. right? And she's from, she's a PhD graduate in sociology and graduate instructor with women and gender studies department at the University of Missouri. Yes, they actually go by they, them pronouns, but yes. They, them, sorry. It's okay. And so they will be there on this Saturday the 8th and also Saturday the 15th yes. to discuss this, yes. which is which is great. I felt like I wanted to speak to somebody last night. Right. <laughs> and that's, yeah. that's, that's, that, that's the goal of the talk back. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we close? I would say come out and see this yeah, play. Please. It's it's mm-hmm. it's delicate. It's haunting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's incredibly complicated, and we have a team of actors and designers, um, and our dramaturg and myself. We've 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 really formed a team that I think has really done our very best to tell this story and to give um, authenticity to the characters. And we'd love to have you in our audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is beautifully acted. I would say yes. everybody did such Thank a you. sterling job and clearly great directors and dramaturgs yes, too. And, <laughs> and lighting and everybody else involved. But um, yeah, it's, it's really a moving play. Definitely an important play to see. Thank you so much to Rachel Bauer, Jack Fulkerson and Kaylin Jones. Their production of the Anna Ziegler play Boy opens at Talking Horse Theatre tonight and continues for two weekends. You can catch evening performances at 7 <laughs> 30 plus there are 2 p.m. matinee performances this weekend and next weekend. Talking Horse Theatre is at 210 St. James Street and tickets are available at talkinghorseproductions.org or you can give them a call on 573-607-1740 and it is a relatively small theatre so you may be lucky and be able to turn up
up on the night, but I would recommend that you get tickets in advance because I think there's only 70 seats available for each show and it's only a two weekend run. So there's not as many performances as usual. Rachel, Jack and Kaylin, thank you so much for sharing this play with us. Thank, thank you, you thank for you. having us. You. you are listening to Speaking of the Arts and before we hand the airwaves over to Terry Gross and Fresh Air, I have a list of arts events coming up that would like to find their way into your diaries. Tonight is first Friday in the North Village Art District and it is Artlandish Gallery's 10th anniversary party. Starting at 6pm, there'll be live music on the patio from Andrew Ryan and then Bags Fly Free. Whilst out front, you can hear Keith Fletcher along with the Honey Biscuits. There will also be live kittens and bunnies courtesy of the Central Missouri Humane Society. A cake exhibit and contest starting at 6.30 plus celebratory champagne and cake served at 8pm and all are welcome. At Sega Browdis Gallery, their new June exhibit will be on the walls Tonight, featuring works by five artists. Tonight, as we said earlier, is opening night for the new production of the dramatic play Boy at Talking Horse Theatre. The show is on tonight and tomorrow at 7.30. Plus there's a 2pm matinee on Sunday and tickets are $15. In Jefferson City, the Abbott-inspired musical Mamma Mia has just started its three-week run at Capital City Productions. This is a mostly sold-out show, but some new dates were added, so check the Capital City Productions website to see what is still available. Also in Jefferson City, Mr. Roberts is on at the Little Theatre at the Miller Performing Arts Centre tonight and tomorrow at 7.30. At the Warehouse Theatre at Stevens College tonight, their Summer Theatre Institute programme continues with a night of devised theatre in a show called This Moment, Precious Fleeting, Catch It, Frame It. The show starts at 7.30 and like all the Summer Theatre Institute shows, it is totally free to attend and open to everyone. At Maplewood Barn, their production of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, set in the Prohibition era, is in its second of three weekends. Tickets are $10 and that show starts at 8 and at the Lyceum Theatre in Ararock, it is opening weekend for their first production of the season, Rogers and Hammerstein's Cinderella. And tickets cost from $17. Saturday night, the Como Comedy Club returns to the Blue Note with the well-read comedy tour featuring Trey Crowder, a.k.a. the liberal redneck, Drew Morgan and Corey Ryan Forrester, performing two shows at 7 and 9.30. Tickets for those shows are $25. On Sunday evening from 6 till 10pm, the chorus, Columbia's LGBTQQA to Z Community Choir, presents a totally 80s queer dance Como Pride prom party at Rose Music Hall and that closes out Pride Week. The evening is hosted by the fabulous Lux Queen with live music from 80s cover band The Love Attacks and the Chorus Choir. The evening includes a costume contest at which I get to be one of the judges. Tickets are $10 on the door with all proceeds benefiting the chorus. At the Missouri Theatre, the Missouri Symphony Orchestra and Columbia Chorale perform a grand night for singing featuring the vocals of Melissa Bohan and friends in a semi-stage evening of Rogers and Hammerstein music. The concert starts at 8pm on Sunday night and tickets are $35. And the Missouri Symphony Orchestra's Hot Summer Nights continues on Monday with a chamber recital at Broadway Christian Church from 7 to 8pm and tickets are 15 At the University of Missouri's Studio 4 next Tuesday, the Summer Rep Theatre has its first of two summer comedies in concert performances, both of which are rehearsed and performed the same day. This first new comedy is called Prince Snow and is written by Mizzou's Lainey Van Sant. And at Rose Park, their Movies in the Park summer season continues on Tuesday with Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. That movie starts at 8.30 and it's free to attend. Wednesday night is opening night of the season up in Macon for the Maples Rep Company's production of the musical comedy The Full Monty. Tickets cost from $24 and the show runs through July the 7th. And at the Missouri Theatre next Wednesday, the Missouri Symphony Orchestra's Hot Summer Nights has their annual silent movie night. This year featuring Buster Keaton in The General and tickets are $15.
At the Lyceum Theatre in Ararat, there is the first of their new summer Laughs at the Lyceum Comedy Nights. The Ladies of Laughter, Funny and Fabulous Tour has its first outing next Thursday and will feature Erin Jackson and Christine Stedman. Their show starts at 7.30. At Skylock Bookshop, Columbia-based author K.L. Harris is launching her debut novel and the first in her new fantasy adventure series called Aquilian's Key. Her talk starts at 6 and that's free to attend. At Daniel Boone Regional Library, the Columbia Friends of China presents Chinese Voices from a Thousand Years Ago, featuring music on the Guzheng, played by Ms. Revon Wong of the Mizzou Confucius Institute. This is a free event and it starts at 7. And finally, next Thursday is opening night for the Columbia Entertainment Company's production of the musical comedy Hairspray. The show starts at 7.30 and, as always, there is a special discounted price for Thursday nights. Only $10 for adults instead of the regular 14. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me, Dinah Moxon, and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagan. We'll be back next week with more news, views, and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Stay arty, Columbia.